Postmoderns have a variety of ways of thinking about God. God can, for some, be a distant watchmaker who wound up the cosmos and let it loose to self-assemble. For others, God's like the Force in Star Wars, an impersonal power that you can access that binds all things together. God can also be an invisible superhuman hero who is there to right every wrong and make sure it all comes out good in the end. And if that God doesn't cut the mustard, it's probably because you just didn't believe enough. But for a first century Jew like Jesus of Nazareth, God would have been seen in very different but a much more in- intimate way. From an ancient Jewish perspective, the one true God, the Lord or I am, is not just the creator, but the divine bridegroom, whose ultimate desire is to be united to his people. Salvation is a relationship that is so intimate, so permanent, so sacrificial, and so life-giving that can only be described as a marriage between creator and creature. It's the God that saves, that leads the people from Israel, saves them from the Babylonians, and is always present guiding the people to make them holy. Marriage is the only human experience that comes close to describing this understanding of the nature of the human person, the human community, and the relationship with God. That is one reason why the church, in our long tradition, says that marriage is a, sacra- is a sacrament. It's the image of Christ's relationship to his bride, the church. That's especially prevalent in St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is the season of Lent, a time when we examine our sinfulness, when we have the penitential practices of prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. If our image, though, of God is as the divine bridegroom, this ought to color how we see our relationship to God and especially how we see sin. If God is wedded to Israel, if God is the bridegroom of the church, sin isn't simply breaking a rule. Instead, it's adultery. It's the betrayal of a relationship. Psalm 106 is not the only uh, part of the Old Testament that sees sin this way. But Psalm 106 describes sin as shedding innocent blood, a blood of their own sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, desecrating the land with bloodshed. They defiled themselves by their actions and became adulterers by their conduct. You also see this in the prophetic book of Hosea, where God and Israel are described as a very dysfunctional marriage. And the prophet actually images Israel's uh, adultery by marrying a prostitute. Well, there are other images of God in the Old Testament, but it is this image that Jesus is relying on in today's story of the Samaritan woman at the well as told in the Gospel of John. This is Father John Arnold, And this is Oral Valley Catholic. The gospel today is about a well, a woman, and a wedding. 
Let's consider each element of this story about Jesus and the Samaritan woman in turn. First, the importance of the well. The village well is the place where men and women meet and marriages are arranged. Why? Because that's where people in the ancient world went to meet. It was the center of village life. You needed water to wash and to cook, uh, to clean your home. And there was no central plumbing. There was only the village well. Today, we have classrooms, social clubs, single bars, and online dating. But the well is at the center of village life in the ancient world. And it's where many marriage contracts were first arranged. Here's some examples from the Old Testament. First, in Genesis chapter 24, Abraham, the father of Israel, sent his servant back to his own people to find a wife from amongst his relatives. And the servant met Isaac, that's Abraham's son, future bride, Rebekah, at a well. Here's another example of a well and a wedding in the Old Testament. Moses, after he escaped from Pharaoh, met his future wife Zipporah at a well in the book of Exodus. That'd be in chapter 4. Here's another example. And these are really the ancient examples. Um, Jacob, in the book of Genesis, chapter 29, met Rachel, that would be the mother of Joseph and Benjamin, his, uh, uh, Jacob's future bride, at a well when he moved a stone to allow her and her sisters to water their father's flock. It was a show of Jacob's strength, but also in his charity and concern uh, for Rachel, the woman he wanted to marry. So Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at a well. And so you put a man, a woman at a well, and it's the image of a marrying, uh, marriage contract. It's interesting also how Jesus talks about the well. Do you remember he told the woman that if she had asked, he would give her living water? It's this whole interplay about uh, drinking and thirst. And so what does Jesus mean when he talks about living water? There's at least three overlapping meetings in living water. First is at the literal level. Living water in uh, the Old Testament is a stream, it's a river, it's moving and bubbling, rather than the well from a cistern or, say, an, uh, a well that's just dug into the ground. And so this is why this woman misunderstands, because Jesus is drawing a metaphor between the literal meaning of the water in the well to the second overlapping meaning. And this is this, the second meaning of living water, in a sense, what it draws up is a metaphorical understanding about weddings. Because in uh, the book of Numbers, that's in the Torah, um, living water was where a woman would bathe before she, as she was preparing herself uh, for her wedding day. It's not an ordinary bride that Jesus is meeting at the well. There is this eschatological, this sense of uh, the meaning of the relationship between God and bride Israel when they talk about living water. It's also, I would say, the image of baptism because Jesus in these first chapters of the Gospel of John is talking about the sacraments. As you know, uh, he talked about it with Nicodemus. He'll talk about the Eucharist in John chapter 6. At the end of the gospel, he'll breathe on his disciples and say, receive the Holy Spirit. John's gospel is the most sacrament-oriented sacrament gospel 
of, of the four. And finally, uh, the meaning of living water. Jesus is using this water, which will somehow tie into the water that comes from his side mixed with blood when he's lanced with the spear by the Roman centurion at his crucifixion. And so the well, it's a place where uh, a groom and a bride would meet. It's water where a bride would be prepared for marriage. It's somehow also about the crucifixion uh, and the wedding between the divine bridegroom and uh, his bride, the church. And so secondly, the bride. So consider who this bride is. She's a Samaritan. And if you remember anything about the history of Israel, you'll recall that the people of Israel were conquered by the Assyrian Empire in the 8th century. And what the Assyrians would do is they would take all the most important people and uh, deport them from the land, spread them all out over the Assyrian Empire so they couldn't get back together again. It was the way of breaking up local cultures and incorporating uh, great numbers of people into the broader Assyrian sphere of influence. And then what the Assyrians would do was they would import people from other parts of their empire into this conquered territory. Functionally, what that means is, is that the Samaritan woman, her lineage is probably part pagan Assyrian and probably some people that were left over after the conquest but still dwelled in Assyria. St. Augustine would say that this woman was the perfect example of Gentile and, uh, and Israelite blood in one person. It's also who Jesus goes uh, to preach to in the very first part of all the Gospels, because he starts up in the very northern part of Israel where the Assyrian conquest took place. These are where those 10 tribes were originally lost. And so it's interesting, I don't know if you knew this, but the Samaritans still worship on Mount Gerizim today, uh, right around Jacob's well. Uh, last I read, there's about 800 of them left, but they're the remnants of this ancient people. So we've talked about the well. We've talked about the bride as both um, Israelite and, and the pagan, the Gentile world. But third, how about the wedding? Jesus introduces into the conversation the idea of sin. Do you remember when uh, the, the lady says she, he, Jesus talks to her and uh, he asks her, where's your husband? And she goes, well, you know, uh, he's not here. She dissembles somehow. He says, I actually you've been married five times. That shouldn't shock us, right? Elizabeth Taylor had eight husbands. But in that place and time, someone to have that many marriages, and then for Jesus to say the man she's with now is not in fact her husband, what he's saying is this woman's a pariah, completely disconnected from the social life of the village because she's there when nobody else is around. And so Jesus is reaching out to her. She tries to change the subject. You remember? She says, well, you Jews say that you worship in Jerusalem. We say we worship here at Mount Gerasim. She's trying to steer the conversation away from her, her marital woes and the great pain that she must have. And that's when Jesus says this, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews, literally from the tribe of Judah. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such the Father seeks to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What do you think Jesus means by spirit and truth? First, spirit. You know, in, in the ancient world, the Jews were supposed to worship at Jerusalem. The Samaritans were supposed to worship on Mount Gerasim. That goes back to like the, the 10th century BC. But we don't think about it like that. It's because we worship as Jesus is taught. We worship in spirit, not at a place. So we worship when we pray in our cars or at our homes with our families. And we worship as the body of Christ when we're drawn together as God's people at St. Mark's Church, whatever church we, we gather together. So our understanding of how we encounter God in church or at home, wherever we are, is what Jesus is in part, I think, referring to when he talks about worshiping in spirit. But worshiping in truth, is we worship in God in truth when we know God and love him. You cannot love who you do not know. And so true understanding of the worship of God comes through the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is the power of the New Testament as this direct revelation of God becoming a human person in order to make God known to his people. And so the whole story of Jesus is about how you follow God from birth to death through resurrection. And we participate in that life, both in spirit and in truth. And then this happens between the man, between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Then the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will show us all things. Jesus then said, I who speak to you am he. It's one of the few examples before his trial where Jesus acknowledges that he's the anointed one of God. You know, John tells this story because he recognizes in this image of the woman at the well that she is like a bride, not just because she and Jesus are going to get married. That doesn't happen. But it's Jesus as the divine bridegroom come to recall his bride. That is both Israel and, the, and uh, these people of the 10 tribes that have been dispersed. Jesus sees himself as the divine bridegroom. I said earlier, but St. Augustine said that because she's not just an Israelite, but she's also a pagan, she represents all of humanity and in herself, both Jew and Gentile, both the Israelites and the pagans who are waiting for a savior to come and to save them. What are they going to be saved from? What is the divine bridegroom calling her back from? Well, obviously, sin. So we talked out, started out this podcast talking about how people think about God. Think about God as coming to find you at a place that's like the well in your life. God isn't a distant God to his people, but God calls us into an intimate relationship that marriage is this image of, the sacrament of. The image of Jesus as the divine bridegroom is also in John's gospel in the wedding of Cana in John chapter two. In John chapter three, the next chapter, Jesus specifically refers to himself as the divine bridegroom. 
And so this story is to be understood in the light of how Jesus is representing himself at the wedding of Cana and also when he calls himself the divine bridegroom. Here's what he said in John 3. He who has, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. The image of Jesus as the divine bridegroom is also at the root of the stories told by Matthew and Luke about the great king's wedding banquet. All of this is rooted in the Old Testament's image of God as the bridegroom of Israel. Our Catholic catechism teaches that the entire Christian life bears the mark of the spousal love of Christ in the church. Already baptism, the entry into the people of God is a nuptial mystery. In other words, a marital mystery, a bridal mystery. It is, so to speak, the nuptial bath which precedes the wedding feast, the Eucharist. The catechism's referring back to numbers and living water as the water that a bride would bathe herself in. That's the connection drawn to baptism. You know, what's this all about? It's about intimacy and what love really is. The woman's sins aren't the impediment to God's love. He seeks her out while she's still in all these marriages. They are, however, an impediment to her being able to love him back. She has to deal with her sin first, and that's baptism. And in a sense, come clean so he can wash her and make her into his bride. And so what does this have to do with Lent, sin, and salvation? You may or may not remember, but in the very first Sunday of Lent, I talked about St. Augustine's book, The Confessions. And in that book, I talked about, while I was talking about that book, I said that St. Augustine saw sin as a disordered love. Let's go back to that story, talk a little bit more about salvation and love and the meaning of the mystical marriage between God and his church. And so, To remind you, here's what St. Augustine wrote in his Confessions about stealing pears from a neighboring farmer's tree when he was a kid. Close to our vineyard, there was a pear tree laden with fruit. The fruit was not enticing, either in appearance or in flavor. We nasty lads went there to shake down the fruit and carry it off in the dead of night. After prolonging our games out of doors until that late hour, according to our abominable custom, We took enormous quantities of the pears, not to feast on ourselves, but perhaps to throw to the pigs. We did eat a few, but that was not our motive. We derived pleasure from the deed simply because it was forbidden. Look upon my heart, O God. Look upon this heart of mine on which you took pity in its abysmal depths. Enable my heart to tell you now that it was seeking this action which made me bad for no reason in which there was no motive for my malice except malice itself. You can find that in the Confessions. Augustine puts a heavy emphasis on this seemingly insignificant episode from his life. And to us, maybe it seems like overkill and obsession, but he sees a deep spiritual meaning to it. He saw it as more than a teenager's prank, but this deep, defect in him that would be expressed in much more ruinous ways in his life. He depicted it as a sin, a rebellion against God's law, with no mitigating motive other than just lust for the wrongness of the sin itself. He's concerned about drawing a link between his experience 
of, of this stealing this fruit in this farmer's garden. And obviously, the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and they're taking fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What do those two stories have in common, his sin and Adam and Eve? Well, obviously, the idea they get to describe for themselves, to determine for themselves what good and evil is. It's the autonomous self, the idea, I make up the rules for me, nobody else can put boundaries on my life. Real freedom is that I call all my own shots. For Augustine, that is a misordered, a disordered sense of love. And so what Augustine sees in it is that his is a heart made for God, made for love itself. And how he sees love, he describes uh, in four ways, and from the most important to the sham, when it all falls apart. So at the top of what love is, is for you and I to love, according to St. Augustine, moral goodness and beauty, justice and prudence and courage and temperance. These are the things of love because it's how it is you become ordered in God's world. Second, not second in importance, but more maybe foundational in a sense of the love of moral goodness is the love of intellectual goodness and beauty, the mind and intelligence, a thirst for truth to try to truly understand who we are in relationship with to God. St. Uh, Thomas Aquinas would say that you have to know God in order to love him. You cannot love who you do not know. The third kind of in descending level of importance is the sensuous or organic beauty of the world. It's the beauty of the pear or of the desert or of music or of art or of of, of uh, the beauty of just embodied existence. All of these things lift us up to intellectual goodness and beauty and finally the experience of love and beauty in an ordered moral life. At the very bottom, uh, heading towards darkness, is where Augustine put the really, truly disordered love of beauty. And he calls it lust. It's when a man lusts after a female or a female for a man. It, it is so disordered compared to the loving, intimate, committed love between man and woman. So it goes back again to the Samaritan woman and Jesus at the well. Five marriages or the one marriage that counts, the marriage to your divine creator. And so what's the significance that we should pull from this with Jesus as the divine bridegroom? So my friends, are you saved? If someone asked you what salvation meant, what would you say? I guess the one answer is I've accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. And there's great truth in that. But you can't limit salvation just to the personal. You can't limit salvation to, I'm just escaping hell. I, I don't think I'm going to go to hell. I'm no murderer. Or salvation is self-help. I'm trying to be the best version of myself to be all I can be. That's an echo of, of uh, American culture. Salvation is not a really nice condo. Here's what salvation is. Salvation is the full participation in God's divine life made possible only by grace. Salvation is to abide in the love of God and one another. 
to be full participants in God's created reality and the divine life of the Trinity. That's what it means to be saved. To participate in this divine life is to experience heaven even now, understanding that it will continue to grow and be complete in our life as we follow Jesus. But for us, the moral life is like a lover responding to the beloved, to God's grace. To flip that around, to close out the moral life, the goodness and beauty, to close out truth, the intellectual goodness, to misuse the sensuous as a sham of beauty and a participation in the life of hell as, as best epitomized by the Satan in John Milton's poem, Paradise Lost, who would rather uh, rule in hell than to serve in heaven. When Jesus offers this living water, he is offering the grace of baptism to prepare the bride, the church, to be filled with the abundant life of God's spirit. The adultery of Israel that we can all participate in is the malicious love that is just a sham of what divine intimacy offers us in mystical marriage with God. It's to love our autonomy more than we love our relationship from God. Autonomy literally means self-enacted law, and we become laws to ourselves. We make the rules. That's what Augustine saw as the great sin in his stealing of those pears. His sin was to decide, to be completely dependent on himself to decide what good and evil is. That's the opposite of the relationship offered in mystical marriage here at the well between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. What St. Augustine was afraid of in the, that stealing those pears is that somehow he had bought into the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden who wanted to be like God, but it's a parody of God. It's just making up the rules for myself, and it limits God to being the divine rule maker and that it's just us making up rules or God making up rules as opposed to the divine intimacy of bridegroom and bride, which is the image of God in the Old Testament that Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman is an exemplification of. Augustine saw the fall in the Garden of Eve at Eden for what it really was, malice against God. What we seek in love is intimacy with one another and with God, but it only works because first we seek intimacy with God as the most fundamental relationship with our life. So that's why the story of the woman, the well, and the wedding is Jesus's image of salvation, an intimate divine union between God and us. This has been another episode of Oral Valley Catholic, and this is Father John Arnold wishing you a, uh, a wonderful Lent, as you know, um, this is uh, going to be a trying Lent for a variety of reasons, including uh, this fright about the coronavirus. We ask you to keep in tune with us on our parish website and Facebook page and our flock notes to receive more information about our communal life. God bless you. Until next, I see you.